I just get so frustrated with the stigma and it's not going to change until we start talking about it. And those still suffering need to talk about it. You don't get better. And, and the shame just is going to swallow society at some point. You got to come out. It's, it's just like any other thing you come out about. You just, you got to tell your story, use your voice and get help. You can't get better if no one knows you're suffering. It's time for the Share Recovery Podcast, where we bring you amazing life-changing success stories from addicts and alcoholics all over the world who share their inspiring journey in recovery. And now, here's your host, Oh. Hey, everybody, and uh, thank you for joining us on another episode of the Share Podcast. Today, we have Kelly Idison joining us on the show. Kelly is a great friend and someone who I have had the honor to watch grow through her recovery. Uh, We first met in the Recovery Elevator private group, and she would post these daily videos about her ups and downs in early recovery that impacted me and uh, so many of the other members in the group. Kelly recently celebrated three years clean and sober. She's an amazing writer and has a recovery website called Pure Life Recovery. Pura Vida. (laughs) I love it. And now she's a very prominent member of our share private Facebook group. She's loud and proud about her recovery, about removing the stigma and the shame behind being a drug addict and an alcoholic, and most of all, about being open to vulnerability. Today's episode, Kelly touches on some really tough moments in her active addiction as well as in her recovery and how she battled through them. So buckle up, folks, because today is an emotional journey you won't forget. So let's dive right in without further ado. But first, a quick message from our sponsor, Organifi. Organifi is an organic superfood supplement that takes 30 seconds to make with no blending, no juicing, and no cleanup. Organifi is a coconut and ashwagandha-infused green juice that is gluten-free, soy-free, dairy-free, vegan, and absolutely delicious. My wife and I drink it every single day. We absolutely love it. We've noticed a significant difference in reduced stress, in improved digestion, improved mental clarity, and it boosts our energy levels. So not only is it organic and upgraded with 11 superfoods, if you order now, you're going to get 20% off your order by using promo code SHARE, S-H-A-I-R. So go to the Organifi website, www.organifi.com. Organifi is spelled O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I, and make sure to put in your promo code SHARE, S-H-A-I-R, and get 20% off your order today. Okay, guys, so a couple of announcements before we dive into the iTunes reviews. Um, And first of all, just a reminder that we are now launching mini episodes called Recovery Talk. Uh, Last week was about helping others and being of service. And this Thursday's episode will be about the codependent drama triangle. So for those of you that are in a toxic codependent relationship, this is the mini episode for you. So again, for those of you that don't know, every Thursday now I'm dropping a mini episode called Recovery Talk, where we discuss one topic with actionable steps that you can apply to your recovery immediately. So tune into those episodes. We've had three episodes so far. The first one was on peer pressure. The second one was relapse prevention. The third was helping others and being of service. And next week is going to be the codependent drama triangle. So tune in. 
And in other news, I have recently started working at Costa Rica Recovery as a 12 Steps Addiction Recovery Counselor. And Costa Rica Recovery is a drug and alcohol rehabilitation center. They have been in business now for 11 years here in Costa Rica for English-speaking patients. It is a very affordable drug treatment center as well as a detox center. So if you're going through heroin withdrawals or alcoholic DTs, then you might want to consider checking out what Costa Rica Recovery has to offer. So go to www.costaricarecovery.net so you can get information about the treatment plans and the costs. And then if you have any questions, just email me at o at thesharepodcast.com and we'll set up a call to see if Costa Rica Recovery is the right place for you. And guys, a quick reminder to please remember to subscribe to the Share Podcast. If you have an iPhone and you listen on iTunes, make sure to click subscribe when you listen to the show. You're going to get a brand new episode downloaded onto your phone every week with a little reminder that lets you know that the Share Podcast just launched its latest episodes. Plus, it's the best way to rank on iTunes. When you subscribe to a show, it increases your ranking in iTunes. And my goal is to have the Share Podcast as the number one recovery resource and podcast in iTunes. So please subscribe. And while you're at it, leave us a five-star rating and review so I can read it on the next episode of the Share Podcast. And speaking of reviews, we've got four brand new reviews, too many ones, uh, and two that are a little longer. So let's start with the first one. The first one is from YY02. Thank you. Awesome. That's the first review. Thank you, YY. Noah032506, title Rings. Thank you. Not sure I get the rings. Okay. And then we have CT, Chris C., Great recovery podcast. The Share Podcast is my meeting in the car. On the way to work, great and inspiring stories of hope and recovery. Thank you for carrying the message. Thank you for the kick-ass review, Chris. And number four is Jess0801, a daily reminder. This podcast has been amazing, and she has amazing in all caps, to listen to during my commute to and from work. I am an elementary school teacher who is in recovery, and listening to this podcast helps me remember what a miracle it is that I am able to teach children and what I had to overcome. I learn from each and every podcast and it reminds me of the beauty that can be found in overcoming addiction. Thank you. Wow, Jess, I love that review. And you know, I've, t- I've had this conversation before with people as far as as far as having a position or a job like that, where you're in charge of other people's children and being a recovering drug addict or alcoholic. And I would say that the good news is, is that today, based on how much has shifted and changed in public opinion, as far as the stigma behind alcoholism and addiction goes, even if you found out that your school teacher was a recovering drug addict or alcoholic, I think for the most part, you're going to get a, well, good for you, man. That's awesome. Now, I wouldn't say you go out and actively advertise that you're a recovering addict or alcoholic because I'm sure there's still plenty of people out there that have a very negative view on someone who has battled addiction. But for those of us that know recovering addicts and alcoholics, the ones that have a strong program, we're the best motherfuckers on the planet. We kick ass. We do great work. We have strong values and principles. We bring a lot to the table. And best of all, we'll know if your kids are fucking around with drugs and alcohol. (laughs) 
<laughs> so Jess, thanks for the awesome review. YY, Noah, and Chris, thank you as well for those great reviews. And for those of you that are listening and have not joined the Facebook private accountability group, make sure to get in there. We are now over 2,700 members strong. It's positive. It's supportive. It's inspirational. It's 24-7. We've got people from all over the world being supportive and asking for help. If you can't get to meetings or don't want to go to meetings, then this is the best place to get your recovery on the go. You'll absolutely love it. So go to Facebook, type into the search bar, share private group, and make sure to spell share, S-H-A-I-R. Click on the join button and we'll get you right in there. And speaking of supporting the show, let's talk about donations. Wow, guys, thank you so much. Lately, there have been quite a few posts. Uh, The first one was from Darren Riley, and the other one was from Joe Bono, and uh, asking for donations, $5 a month, and it's helped out tremendously. We had a bunch of new members that subscribed and are now sending $5 a month, as well as members that sent single larger donations between $25 and $100. It certainly has grown tremendously, and I just want to thank you guys for all this love and support. Some of our members are tight on funds. I get that, and please don't feel obligated to send in donations when you're strapped. I know the feeling, but there's those of you that will not miss five bucks a month. I'm sure of it. It's like $1.25 in the basket after each episode. It's actually less than that now. It's 75 cents since we're doing mini episodes now, huh? Anyway, that's besides the point. The real point is that there's value. And I know you guys find value in the Share Podcast. And I want to keep doing this. And I want it to keep growing. And to do so, we need your help. So if you have the wherewithal to send us $5 a month, then go to the Share Podcast website, click on the Donate button on the top corner of the website, or click on any of the yellow Donate buttons throughout the website, and donate $5 a month to the Share Podcast today. Now, a quick message from Transitions Daily, and then on to the show. Would you like to join a free, anonymous online group that offers a daily topic email with popular recovery resources accompanied by a secret Facebook group for discussion? Then go to dailyaaemails.com for more information about Transitions Daily. And don't forget to share dailyaaemails.com with friends, in meetings, and with sponsees in recovery. Hey, Kelly, thanks for joining us. Hey, yo, thanks for inviting me. I'm excited to have you on the show today. How are you feeling? Um, today, I'm great. <laughs> All right, excellent, excellent. <laughs> All right, so folks, today we have Kelly Idison joining us on the Share Podcast. And Kelly has jumped into recovery with both feet. We met when she was working with Paul Churchill over at Recovery Elevator, and now she has her own blog, Pure Metamorphosis. Kelly is a recovery warrior, a mom, a realtor, a marketing guru, wellness advocate, and a budding writer. My, 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 where do we find the time to do all this? My goodness. That sounds pretty impressive, I got to say. Yeah. Do you find the time to do all this stuff? (laughs) I do. I do. Um, You know, writing saves me. That's been my sanity in recovery. And, uh, you know, of course, sobriety first being a mom second, and then all that other stuff tends to fall into place. So yeah, I do. I do find time. Beautiful, beautiful. Well, which which leads me into my next question, which is, you know, what does your normal daily routine look like, including recovery? 
All right. So my day actually starts with recovery before I even hit the floor. Um, I have uh, learned to use dry erase markers on my mirrors throughout the house. Mm. I usually have the third step prayer on a mirror, um, seventh step prayer. I'm uh, AA, obviously, as um, what's keeping me sober. So I, I look at those mirrors. I say those prayers. Um, and then hit the road. You know, I've got kids, one kid graduating this weekend, the other one, I'm going to start homeschooling this fall. So, you know, typical mom thing. We just try not to argue in the morning, get out the door, get our stuff done, get to work. And then I do hit a meeting almost every night. I have a home group. Um, I chair two to three times a week and I go to probably five to seven meetings a week. So, you know, my days are pretty full. I'm trying to get back in some kind of physical shape. That's been like the last piece of my recovery puzzle, but uh, it's starting. So we got to squeeze that in there somewhere. (laughs) Sounds very, very busy. Uh, But again, you know, you managed to keep recovery on the on the forefront, which is so important, so important. Uh, So tell us how you maintain your spiritual condition, that conscious contact with a higher power? I am an avid reader, so a lot. I carry around, it's kind of like my security blanket. I have a backpack full of my books, full of my journals. Um, Carry that with me everywhere. And I just find moments throughout the day to do some of my favorite readings. And like I said, in the morning, I set that conscious contact right away with prayer. If I forget, like I actually forgot today, and by noon, I was like, why am I sideways? forgot to pray. Um, Mm. I recently started sponsoring some women. Um, That's been huge. If I was in my own head the other night and I got a text at like 1030, you know, hey, I took a drink tonight. What should I do? I was like, okay, I'm so out of my own head now. (laughs) Um, So, you know, I've really embraced the program. I really embrace all of the suggestions, but mostly it's, it's the reading for me and the praying and the service work. Service has been huge for me since I started in recovery. Yes, yes. I've, I've seen quite a bit of that. And, and I know the therapeutic value of one addict helping another, especially the one doing the helping. You know, we get so much from sponsorship and from being participants in the meeting, like taking service commitments or doing H&I mm-hmm. work and things like, things like that, you know, that, that feeling of being connected with, you know, those around us, with the universe, with a higher power in that moment, you know, it's, it's almost like another high sometimes because it, it feels pretty damn good. It absolutely does. You know, and the other piece of that that I didn't mention is my writing. Um, there are nights I sit down and I don't know what I'm going to write. I just know I need to. Like, I just know that that's the therapy I need for the night. And it is amazing to me what comes out. Like, I used to write uh, when I was much younger and then lost that while I was drinking. Slowly it's come back and now it's just a humongous part of my recovery and service work because I do fully believe sharing my story, not not in a boastful manner, not in a manner of shame, but just sharing it helps other people find their own voice. Yes. Well, you know, for the first thing your sponsor is going to tell you is do some writing, especially when you're going through some, well, you know, write about it. It's in the steps, you know, that kind of a thing. So there's always that therapeutic value of putting pen to paper. And so, (laughs) and you're right, you know, sometimes you have no idea, 
you know, what you're going to write or how you're going to write. But as soon as you do and you take that action, stuff just starts to come out, especially if you ask for a little bit of help. You know what I mean? No, those are total God shots for sure. (laughs) Totally believe that. So tell us, Kelly, how much clean time do you have and when is your anniversary date? I will have three years next Friday, June 9th. Oh, really? This is so wonderful. I just got goosebumps. (laughs) I know. It's so amazing. Yeah. I'm like, all right, you know, one day at a time, but it's next Friday. (laughs) So it's, it's a pretty big deal. It's a huge deal. And things just start to compound as the years go on. It's so important that newcomers hear this, you know, that, that the importance or the exponential value that happens year after year doesn't mean, and you know, we're going to go into this right now when you tell your story, it doesn't get easy all the time, right? All it does is it just gets easier to cope with the shit that comes your way as time goes on. You can compartmentalize, yeah. you can... Talk about your emotions. You have a place to discuss your emotions. You know, it's not that it gets easier, but life just ex- exponentially gets better year after year. And I remember that third year too. You know what I mean? It's, it's like I was right in the middle of that five year uh, moment. And so a lot of things happen uh-huh. year one, year two, year three, year four, year five, right? And you can benchmark these, right? They're great milestones. So this is pretty exciting. Yeah. I'm glad I got you on the interview a week before your anniversary. This is so cool. And we're going to zip line um, the day after my anniversary. So Where? Uh, in Big Sky, Montana. We're going to zip line over the river and through some of the mountains. And yeah, it's a, it's a three-hour zip line ride. So I figured that'd be a great way to celebrate. Well, take some good pictures. I'll use that for the social media site. You know what I mean? Like, that is a yeah, great Yeah, for sure. That's a great idea. <laughs> it is, you know, because, you know, I'm soaring, <laughs> right? Exactly. Oh, and you know who's going? All my sober friends, all my sober friends. It's amazing. It's like, you don't think you have fun in recovery? Well, look at this. Holy cow. Look what I can do sober. It's amazing. It is amazing. And you have, the fun's endless. And all the trips you take and no danger. You're surrounded with your sober buddies. You know, you can Mm. take stock in that and, you know, there's no fear. You know, so you can just have fun and not worry that, you know, something's going to trigger you or anything like that. It's just fun all the way around. Exactly. All right. So tell us, we're going to start diving. We're going to start moving into the addiction part here. So tell us, first of all, how old you were the first time you drank or used drugs? And more importantly, how did they make you feel? I was in eighth grade. So I guess that puts me at about 13. Um, It was before a school dance. And it was probably six of us standing around, maybe had eight beers. I don't know. Not not enough to get super smashed or anything. I don't even know if I actually remember the effect of the alcohol. But what I do know is that I felt a part of just by doing that activity. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, So I welcomed that opportunity whenever it happened. And then, of course, the consumption increased and the intoxication. And, you know, and it was fun for quite a long time. (laughs) (laughs) That's it. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So you're warmed up here. That's what I needed. All right. So it's time for you to tell your story, uh, the battle against drugs and alcohol, the wreckage it caused in your life when you hit rock bottom. And then finally your journey into recovery up until today. So Kelly, take it away. All right. So yeah, I started in middle school. Um, I grew up in a divorced household. Um, 
there's alcoholism definitely on my mom's side of the family. Not necessarily my mother herself, but her dad was an alcoholic and a morphine addict. Um, he actually died, I believe, of a morphine or- overdose. Um, you know, so there was always alcohol around and accessible. Um, it just, it didn't ever seem that odd to me that I drank as much as I did. You know, my parents had bridge parties and drank and my dad drank on the way up to the cottage in Northern Michigan. And it was just always kind of around, but never like severe intoxication. Uh, I think that my first um, real episode with that was with a stepdad that um, my mom married when I was in high school. And he was a a severe alcoholic and a very abusive drunk. Um, He used to abuse my mom and she would never do anything about it because she was too scared of his retaliation. Mm. And then one night he did harm her enough that he broke his hand on her face. And I, I, uh, tried to intervene. I was probably 17 and he ended up put me in a corner and I just was bold somehow, uh, sober bold, just told him, you know, you hit me, you know, go ahead and see what happens. Um, so that was my first real glimpse of a bad, um, addiction problem. He did leave and, that was the end of him. Uh, you know, and then I didn't, I went through high school. I was successful. I was a cheerleader. I was in the journalism class. Didn't pull super good grades because I really did like to party more than <laughs> any kind of academics. You know, my friends, this was in the 80s. Uh, I recall an accounting class that I hated and my friends would pull up in their big old Buick with um, malt liquor, you know, hey, Kelly. And I would jump out the window at school skip the rest of school and just go party the rest of the day. And it's around that time I started smoking pot as well. We just did that. You know, it was just the eighties thing to do. You just smoked and drank and we had major keggers and, uh, you know, middle of nowhere, but it started, you know, it, it was about in high school that I started thinking I would leave my car or my mom's car. Actually, we're going to be honest. I would leave it somewhere at night and the next day we'd have to go try to figure it out me and my mom, where was my car? I couldn't remember. And I didn't realize until I was much older, you know, the terminology, what is, what is a blackout? I was blacking out in high school. Easy. I mean, there are so many situations where I should have been harmed or dead and, you know, thank God I'm not. Right. But that's kind of when I started thinking, you know, I don't, I should probably be able to remember this stuff. And poor, poor decisions started after high school. I didn't go to college. I went to cosmetology school, um, partied a lot. We were going to bars by, by the time I was 18. I was born in 1967. Uh, and back then I could fix my driver's license. I turned the seven into a two <laughs> and hairsprayed it. So if they tried to lick the number off, it didn't work. Got into all kinds of bars. So much trouble. And we first, I had my first run-in with the law when I was 17. We were actually going to a teen night at a college bar that they just closed down to college kids one night a week. And it was just teenagers. But we got caught drinking in the parking lot before we went in and went to the police station. And, um, you know, that was, we weren't really arrested. I think it was more of a scare tactic. And at that time, I went home that night and 
told my mom what happened and I thought I was being so brave to tell her and so responsible. And her response was basically, you know what? I don't give a shit anymore. And so that kind of just gave me carte blanche. I just went and did whatever I wanted. People stayed at my house because we didn't have a curfew. Like I literally did whatever I wanted. Mm. Um, somewhat successful without college. You know, I went, uh, I lived in Michigan until I was 23. I did cut hair. I worked retail, but so hungover. Like, I don't know how, how I was functioning most days. And, uh, you know, in my mid twenties, right before I moved out of Michigan, I was doing Coke and smoking pot and, you know, having illicit affairs and whatever, all of it. But then I did my first geographic when I was um, 23. I decided to move to Las Vegas. Oh, man. <laughs> go, go big or stay home, right? I know, right? So I'm going to go stop drinking. I'm going to move to Vegas. Right, my I dad lived thinking. here. <laughs> right? I know. I was like, it, but for me, it was more about I got to get away from these people. Like right. I was partying nonstop mm-hmm. and the blackouts were worse and I was starting to injure myself and so my dad had moved to Vegas in 80, 86 and I decided to move there in 93 because he offered me a place to live. And um, I lived with my dad. I got a great job at Bally's Casino and literally didn't drink for about four months. Lost weight, got in shape. I was walking like five miles a day. Um, climbed the ladder at Bally's. I ended up in VIP services where we checked in all of the movie stars and the athletes and I got to wear a tuxedo to work every day. Um, but then of course I was working in a casino and the party and did start again mm-hmm. and, uh, met my husband at Bally's casino. We partied a lot and, you know, our first date, I met his dad and sister and, you know, we tend to surround ourselves with people that drink like us or worse. And in this case, his dad shook my hand and he said, you know what? I don't trust a person that doesn't drink. Do you drink? And I was like, oh, man, did I just find my people? (laughs) (laughs) It was perfect. And so, you know, we partied with him. Um, I ended up moving in with my, well, he's now my ex-husband. I moved in with him while we were still dating. He was living with his father. So I moved in with both of them and I was in their house probably about six months and his um, dad and stepsister, his dad and sister were killed in a motorcycle accident. (gasps) Yeah. Um, So that was my first, I was, I was 28 when they died. And, uh, you know, we went from partying the whole family to, um, being engaged, buying a house and planning two funerals. And, you know, within 10 months of their deaths, we were married. Um, and I don't know the complete story. They were on a Harley and they were doing a toy run or a poker run for toy, toys for tots. And there's been rumors, you know, that they were drinking and I don't know. My ex-husband never wanted to really find out, but regardless of that, it didn't shake us up enough to stop our own drinking. In fact, it increased. We just 
we just totally masked all that grief with more drinking. Uh, so that was my first go round with, you know, a real big life, what should have been a big lesson in grief and a life lesson, but I totally pushed it in a corner. We got married, we had two kids, uh, you know, and I was, I maintained my drinking during my childbearing years. And after we had the kids, I was like, you know, here comes the limitation. I'm going to give you all the rundowns of typical alcoholic. We had the kids and I was like, you know what? We need to have a three beer limit every night, just three <laughs> beers each, <laughs> you know, and I'm trying to control his drinking and mine. And, you know, eventually it just, it didn't work. We, we left Vegas. We moved to Utah, which was like a complete culture shock. And, um, you know, we're not Mormon. Nothing wrong with, I have nothing wrong with Mormons. It just was moving from Vegas to, to a place where I had to drive 10 miles to get a bottle of wine was kind of a big deal. <laughs> uh, you know, and just kind of being kind of the outcast in the neighborhood. Um, but it was about that time in Utah that I realized I wasn't happy in my marriage and I hadn't been. And my drinking started. I was a stay at home mom. Oh, that's a huge part of my story. 10 years I stayed at home with my kids. And in Utah, uh, my kids were four and two. And that's around the time I started drinking. I would open a bottle of wine around three o'clock in the afternoon. And by the time my husband got home, a, at least a bottle would be gone. I would usually finish a bottle so he didn't know I had one already and then open another one and pretend I had. Oh, nice. <laughs> just I just had a couple. <laughs> <laughs> well, he finally caught on, but, you know, he'd come in and I'd have like, I'm making pasta and I've got my first glass of wine of the day. You know, it was really, I was into my second bottle. Oh. And, uh, you know, then eventually we did we left Utah and moved to where I live now in Bozeman, Montana. And I, you know, major depression hit me here. And I, we ended up divorced and my drinking just, it just took over. You know, they say, especially for women, it's a slippery slope. Like you may be a recreational drinker or heavy drinker, but I, you know, you hear that your disease is always doing push-ups. Mm -hmm. You know, it's always getting stronger. Yep. And for me, I can remember the day that I started thinking, shit, I don't have control anymore. Right. I had decided, you know, we got divorced and <clears throat> I had a really good job doing social media for a golf community or all of their marketing actually. And I decided to resign from there and do work from home. <laughs> so I started drinking uh, while I was building a new business. I was drinking from at least 8 a.m. until I went to bed at night. Oh, man. Yeah. And I remember one day I came home and I had to let an exterminator in and I poured a glass of wine and he kind of looked at me and I was like, what the fuck is he looking at? You know, it's just, it's noon. <laughs> I should it's noon. It's fine. And but then in my That's awesome. I was like, you know what? I bet he, I bet he's drank already today. I started thinking that everyone drank like me. Uh-huh. Like I totally thought, you know, maybe this guy doesn't understand why I'm drinking, but I bet you it's because he does it too. Oh. It's so it is. this disease is so messed up. It's baffling. Um, but that is the day I realized like 
I had got an issue, but it couldn't stop. And, uh, ended up, we moved, we had to move. Things just started falling apart. Like I had to move out of the house where we had had our kids. We had been there for a couple of years after our divorce mortgage in lieu of child support. Um, so we were basically living there for free and he decided he wanted the house back. So then I, then I started this journey of trying to find a place to live with two kids and a dog and not a lot of money. And I ended up moving like every six to eight months. And the final place I lived was 12 miles away from the high school. And I remember just raging on my daughters because we would get all the way in town like all the way, like 12 miles is that far in Montana. You know, there's no traffic. Um, but I would rage about forgotten shoes or mm. I don't even, I don't even remember, but my children were so scared of me and I would drop them off, drive back home, drink the rest of the day and then set an alarm to get them from school, come home, drink, go to bed. Uh, and I was going to see a physician at the same time depression and she kept giving me meds and I had Xanax and I had Klonopin. We're talking benzos here. So oh, yeah. I was drinking all day and taking benzos, Xanax in the morning, benz or the Klonopin at night. And then I was also on Celexa for depression. Um, these are all depressants. So you can imagine the bottom I hit was, it was finally, I just couldn't do it. I had been napping or sleeping or passing out, whatever you want to call it all day long. The day I hit bottom and, um, we were at a friend's house. My daughter was 13 at the time. And on the way home, I realized I couldn't drive. I don't remember any of this. This is her story. I pulled over and said, you need to drive. And she's like, I can't drive mom. It's a stick ship. I'm, I'm not old enough. You know, you're fine. You're going to make it. And we got home and she said, I went upstairs and just started sobbing. And she's like, it wasn't the normal cry. It was like, you were hysterical. And she came upstairs and found me with a bottle of pills in my hand <sighs> and wine. And I was like, I can't. And she's like, you can't what? I said, I can't do this anymore. This is my child that I'm telling I'm suicidal. My God. So, she got her younger sister and said, stay by mom. Don't let her near the windows. Just sit with her. And this is important. You've got to understand she's 11. So she got the suicide hotline and they told her to take me to the crisis center. She called my ex-husband. He came over, got to the crisis center. They wouldn't take me because I was over the legal limit. They give you a breathalyzer before they'll admit you so you don't detox in a bad way there. Mm -hmm. I had to go, so I went to the hospital detox. Then I went back to the crisis center for a week. That's where my journey begins. That was June 8th of 2000. What did I say this? Three years? 2014. Yeah. Yep. So that was that night. And then I was in the Hope House for a week. And yeah, I had a friend that was an AA. And I emailed her from the Hope House and said, I, I think I need to go to an AA meeting. And that's when it started. I don't remember my first AA meeting. I wasn't drunk. At that time, I had detoxed for a week. I just don't remember. I didn't even remember how I got there. But I kept going. And that's that's that part of the story. Oh, my God. It's so unbelievable. Oh, man, your kids. Your kids. That's all I keep thinking about. Those kids. Yeah. I 
it sucks. I hate that I put them through that, but they saved me. Yeah. If I had been home alone that night, I wouldn't be here. I just wouldn't be. And I think, Blessing. you know, I think back, like, why did I do that to my children? And I did that. I think, you know, they've asked me since then, why did you want to die? And I said, I didn't. And I think that's why I did that while they were home. I wanted help. This is me trying to rationalize my drunk thinking, but I wanted help. And that's the only way I could figure it out. Didn't want to die. Why else would I have done that while they were home? Like, I knew they were going to stop me at some point on some level. I knew I wasn't going to get away with it. So I thank God every day for them. Yes, yes. And, and you know, here's where I come in with the divine intervention that, you know, say what you will about where you were at. You were gone, right? You were just, oh, you were incoherent. They were, you, had, you had zero control over anything. So right. something was moving you. Something was 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 guiding you, um, and it just happened to be, you know, the way the way the way it turned out was the way it turned out. But for me, it's just like there had to be a divine intervention there, right? That that oh, you know, absolutely. And deep down inside, you wanted it to stop. You wanted it to stop so badly that you were willing to take your own life. And I think I was there, and I think mm-hmm. that when when you when you openly admit to that and ask for it, then, you know, depending on, I, and, and again, this is me, I can't talk for God, <laughs> you know, right. but well, really? I, I can't talk <laughs> for God, but I know you, you going, you went through the exact same thing I went through that there was that moment where God stepped in and I didn't pull the trigger. You didn't pull the trigger on this and we got the help that we needed Right, because we were so desperate mm-hmm. that we were willing to just take our own lives because you know what? I can't do this anymore. This using thing doesn't serve me. And so I want to check out. And we get this small glimmer right. of hope. And and you know, for you it was your 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 beautiful children because I gotta tell you, man, I, I can't imagine you know, not looking into my kids' eyes and not being able to find somewhere in there to you know, to, to do the right thing. You know, you know what I mean? Yeah. And, you know, I was thinking, this just came up at an AA meeting tonight. This guy said, it was the same prayer I used to say. We were talking about the difference in prayer. Like, before recovery, I would pray after something like, oh, my God, help me get out of this. Where now I pray just, you know, to, to be healthy. And this gentleman at the meeting tonight said, you know, I used to pray before I got sober. God, just take me or make this be different. And I had the same prayer, maybe some different words, but I remember praying like, please just take me or help me out of this, change this. And I was doing that prayer for a good three months because I remember telling my doctor, I don't feel right. Something's wrong. And she kept increasing my benzos. Like this will make you better. Whatever. That's a whole other story, but yeah, let's not go there. I'll start going off. (laughs) Right. I was like, just take me. You're right. It was divine intervention. So God didn't take me, but He made it different. Well, he totally made it different for me. It's it's yeah, and you know, the guy that he was sharing with you, and and it was the exact same prayer that I had. It was take me, <laughs> take me, or or help me get clean. But I'm not going on one more minute longer with this. I'm done with. I'm right. done here. 
you know, and I, I remember I got on my knees and this is not something mm-hmm. that I had done in years. Forget about God, right? I was against right. religion and all that stuff. And I got on my knees and I said, either take me out of this world. I'm serving no purpose, right? Mm-hmm. Or help me get clean. So it's, it's, it's true that, and I had pumped myself full of all kinds of stuff. I don't know how I survived, you know, uh, right. uh, but when I woke up, my first thought, my first thought was, you know, this therapist that I went to go see 10 months ago, he told me that I needed to go to these meetings. That was my first and only thought when I woke up that morning, right? Other than I can't yep. believe I'm still alive, right? And I immediately mm-hmm. just jumped in my car and went to that therapist to get the directions to the meeting. So there is that divine intervention when you have reached rock bottom and you're willing to take your own life, you know, that, yep. that I think that that is... Uh, you know that that God just he has mercy you know, and 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 Absolutely. helps you through it. You know, but but there's so many. But I guess you have to reach that point because there's so many of us that that would like to be sober, but you know how hard are you willing to work for it? Yeah, that's that's well, that's, that's, that's where the point. willingness comes in. You know, sometimes the willingness is not in a in a package with a bow. It's it's being bottom. That was my willingness. It wasn't me walking, you know, skipping into the AA rooms like, hey, I want to get sober. I'm willing to get sober today. No, my willingness was just to freaking hit hit the lowest low I've ever could ever imagine beyond my imagination. So to me, like willingness isn't a pretty package. I, I have a sponsee that's not ready, you know, and that's that's part of it. Not willing. Like, no. I don't think the bottom has been bottom enough yet. But that's all, you know, that's, that's, she's got her own HP. So, right, right. Absolutely. And that's, that's another thing too. You know, they all have, we all have our own higher power. And if we're not, you know, if we're not, if we're not ready, you're not ready. I don't, I don't care how bad it is. Right. Unless, unless you've been, you know, hand delivered that gift of desperation and you finally at the point where I'm, I'm ready to die for this. Right then, then you know you 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 basically have to just keep going back out there and eating mountains of shit, right? Um, <laughs> man, it's almost seriously. It's like right. here, here, take another spoonful because you know you obviously didn't that that didn't work. Yeah. So here, take some more of that, you know. And and well, and I hadn't talked about the health issue. You know, my liver was my liver was failing. I had already been through two cancer biopsies. None of that stopped me. I had a surgical biopsy and needle biopsy. Like I drank the night I got home from the hospital. Oh my God. What the hell? Like, you know, you, you don't know where your bottom is. You think that would be it. Like, holy shit, I might have cancer. I might die. I should probably stop drinking. No, Nope. you know, I had to go another four years. It's crazy. What won't stop us? Well, the beautiful thing is, so now what I want to hear about, because this is what's very cool. Like like I said, I met you um, right at the beginning, because Paul and I launched our podcast exactly the same time. So we were launching a lot of the same stuff at the same time, our Facebook groups, you know, just our interaction, mm-hmm. social media. And that's how I met you, you know, watching your videos inside the recovery elevator. Oh, yeah. yeah, you had tons of those. Right. I did. Yeah, but here's the thing. Again, when I say at the beginning of the year you jumped in, you did. There was recovery every single day. 
And and for for those of us that you know think that somehow there's a different way to do it, when you first get sober, it's every day. It's just like you were drinking right. every single day, oh, yeah. and you were doing the deal. So what I'd like to know, because you know, brutal, brutal, you know, um, bottom that you had. So you know, take us through that. The you know, first that first year, and 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 walk us through. You know what it took. You know, for you to you know kind of level off and then be able to to help Paul out. So yeah, I um, I don't Paul won't mind me telling the story because we've told it enough times. But I actually met Paul, uh, Paul Churchill of Recovery Elevator in the crisis center. I was there as a patient, and he was there as an aide. And I remember I don't remember a word I said in group therapy there, but he sat down by me one day out in the yard. And he said, can I ask you something? And I said, sure. And he said, do you want to drink today? I said, no, no, I don't want to drink today. And then I was like, that's such a lie. I go, yeah, I do. I do want to drink today. I was two days sober. Of course I wanted to drink, but I felt like, oh my God, I hit this huge bottom. I can't admit that I want to drink. So that was my interaction with Paul. It was short. I mean, that was about it. Three months later, I'm in AA and here walks Paul. He walks in. I'm like, that's the dude from the crisis center. Why is he here? Well, he was there for his own issues then. You know, that's our story there. But but what happened was I was just totally immersed in AA. I did the 90, 90 meetings in 90 days. I got a big book at my first meeting. I got sponsored in my first two months. And then at about six months sober, Paul reached out to me for some social media help. And I thought it was for one of his local businesses. It was for this new idea he had for a recovery podcast and um, online presence. And at the time, I was like, I am not sober enough for this shit. Like, <laughs> I cannot, <laughs> I cannot help him launch something about recovery. I don't even know what I'm doing. And really, I didn't. I was. At that time, the only thing that kept me sober was me doing what I was told. That was the only way I was doing the suggestions. I was like, just tell me what to do and I'll do it. And at some point when I was talking with Paul, I thought, there must be a reason. I mean, why did I meet him in the Hope House? He wasn't even there as an addict. He was there as a helper. So why did I meet this guy? Why did he walk into the rooms at AA? Okay, I'll do it. So I jumped into Recovery Elevator. We, you know, trial and error, we did everything. Just really, Paul had a plan and he filled me in little by little, but he only gave me what I needed to know, kind of like recovery. <laughs> I only got what I needed to know to be successful. And then we would move on to the next thing. Um, so I was, what What did I say? Six months sober when he started that. Right. And um that helped me so much. I know, I know people that, you know, members of Recovery Elevator are very thankful for what Paul has started and, and for my input or my participation in the beginning. Um, but I don't know that all those members realize how sober that kept me. I must have done 173 videos. Who knows? <laughs> I don't know. It was a lot. I was on there every single freaking day. Every like, day. I'm making cookies today. I'm, you know, crying today. I'm breaking up with someone. I don't even know what I said. But that shit kept me sober. So, yeah, I was, I was helping Paul provide a great recovery platform. 
And I know Paul would say the same thing. Every single one of those people we've met worldwide has kept us sober. Absolutely. That got me a few more months. And the next thing you know, I'm getting my year chip. And then I got my two year chip. Um, You know, I've pulled away from Recovery Elevator for personal reasons, which we'll get into. They're not so personal, I won't share. But I just needed to transition back into my AA program. I had never fully pulled away, but I wasn't embracing it as much as I needed. I needed my fellowship, my hands on, you know, hold hands in a circle and say the serenity prayer. I needed that, that one-on-one FaceTime um, to get through some personal stuff. And I, I don't regret that I pulled away. I miss it immensely, but it served me for when I needed it. And now I'm doing what I need to do for my family. So that's the foundation of my first couple of years. Well, I'll tell you this much, you know, as far as the the listeners, right? Both you and Paul were, you know, in your first year. You guys hadn't even, you, neither one of you had had a year. <laughs> and I remember when I first, uh, you know, and I hit up Paul to be on, on share when, when he got a year, when he got his one year, right? And so he'd already done a bunch of episodes, right? Um, mm-hmm. And again, for many of us, you know, we start projects or we do things, right, just to, you know, do anything to o- occupy the time. Um, and you met, what you guys did was, you know, take that time and devote it to recovery. So, you know, done properly, you can't lose, right? Right. Done improperly, you can't because right. once the ego gets involved – all right. If if the ego gets involved, it's just like anything else. It's going to go right into the toilet, right? Because yep. you know, then the control aspects of it, or you trample all over, you know, any of the, you know, what got us sober in the first place, right? You, you trample yeah. all over that, or you try and create your own recovery program. No, none of us have done that. We've no. built a foundation of recovery based on what we learned in our 12-step fellowships. I would not be here. I would not have the share podcast. I wouldn't have, I wouldn't know what I know without recovery and always maintaining that understanding that that, th- that, that is a divinely inspired program that was designed many years ago. I got no reason to mess with that. But what I am exactly. trying, exactly, right? All we're, mm-hmm. But as you get to learn this and you get to be around a bunch of other people that are trying to do the same thing, and then the people, and I remember people in my group do it, and in the, in, in the Share Private Facebook group were doing it, in the Recovery Elevator, there was a ton of newbies, a lot of newbies, you know, and, and, and they'd be relapsing, but they would come back and they'd say, hey, listen, I relapsed, right? Totally, and I, yeah. And I, I want to come back. I remember one of the funniest episodes I ever saw was was one of the guys drinking a beer on there? I can't. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> I won't say his name, but he's he's one of the first. He was like the third person that signed on Recovery Elevator. Yeah, and I remember. And he got he did get reprimanded for that, but he came back. He's still there. He's got like two years now. Oh my God! See now that and this is what I'm talking about. And he was a chronic right. relapser. This guy could not get 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 right. sober. And um, but here's the thing, man. You know. Nobody's perfect, and that's part of what we do. We drink, we use, we yeah. relapse. It's not none of that is a requirement, but it happens. Right. And you have to have a forum where 
when you when it happens, you got a place that you can go back to and just feel like it's safe. Yeah. You have to you have to be in a place that's safe, and you guys created that, you know, and 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 it's still going, you know, I you know the what is it now it is. the 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 recovery cafe or the re uh, cafe re cafe yeah. re cafe you know? re, and so and you, you know, know what it is really really it is like you're saying, we're not trying to replace the program, but what I noticed is it was a great platform for people to get their feet wet when they did relapse. Right. It's different coming online with 200 people saying I drank last night than walking into a room of people saying I drank last night. Right. It's such a good springboard into a different program. And I'm not saying it's an embellishment. It's just another tool in the toolkit. It's amazing what you've done, what Paul's done. And, you know, it kept me sober for the first year. I look back like, wow, I had no idle time. No. I really didn't no. because we were so busy doing Recovery Elevator. Thank God. And then I started writing again. <laughs> you know, again, thank God. How many yeah. times have I said that so far? HP, baby. I, was like, I haven't written in 20 years. Paul's like, can you write a blog? Sure. <laughs> oh, my God. I started writing again. You know, it all fell into place. As it should be, as it should be. But, you know, again, right. there's so much of, you know, like you, like that moment where you were, where we were asking for, you know, either take me out of this world, you know, or get me, get help, you know, help me get clean. It's the same thing that once we're out there and we connect with the right people, you know, it's, we can do anything, right? Whatever, whatever's put in front of us, you know, we can do it. And the most important thing is that you fill that idle time with things that are positive. So Mm -hmm. regardless of what anybody says, right, the most important thing is connection. And that's the biggest problem that so many, you know, I had a friend of mine recently hit me up. He's a guy from high school that I haven't talked to, but thank God for Facebook, right? We all follow each other, but I... But here's a guy who I haven't seen in 25 years, maybe longer, haven't talked to him in just as long. And he hits me up and goes, hey, man, you know, um, I've been looking at your podcast. And so um, I know you're in recovery and I think I'm an alcoholic. Right. And, And I said, "Okay, well, here's the best suggestion I can give you. Okay, you need to find a local NAAA meeting, even go to an Al Anon meeting, whatever, whatever's nearby you get to some place. That, you know, you can go in there and you can just say, hey, you know what? I'm an alcoholic, right? And see how that feels, right? And then listen to what other people have to say and see how that feels, right? And if you can't connect, then that might not be, oh, but you know what? It's a small community and the people there might know me. And it's Uh just like, I forgot what it felt like (laughs) to feel like that, okay? Like, I forgot what it felt like to be embarrassed to walk into an AA meeting, right? Like, it's a bunch of alcoholics. How could you possibly be? (laughs) Like, you know what I mean? Like, these are, we're, 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 some of us are like serious, have hit some serious bottoms, right? Like, we've done some really heinous shit. And here I am worried about that, you know, there's some alcoholics that might recognize me. You know what I mean? I know. <laughs> I've always said we're like the island of misfit toys. I don't know which Christmas show it is that there's the island of misfit toys. That's what I, that's my favorite group is called Rebellion Dogs. That's my home group. <laughs> and it's because we're so diverse and we are rebellious. No one in there chose to be 
an alcoholic. I mean, who who's born and wants to be an alcoholic? Nobody. But you know what? We are. And now we sit there and we laugh at shit that you would not laugh at, at, you know, walking down the street with somebody. For me, I'm normal in, in the rooms of AA. I'm not normal outside of there. <laughs> I found my normal. It's, I, you, fi- you finally found your people. <laughs> right. I found them. It's awesome. So now let's segue into, because when we first spoke um, and when we reconnected, uh, you told me that you were going through some really tough stuff. Um, and I'd like you to share that with us and, and more importantly, how you got through it. Because, you know, uh, my father, my father passed away, uh, now it's probably seven, could be seven, could be eight years now. Right. But I remember, I remember that I was in recovery, obviously, and it was just the, it was recovery is the only thing that helped me together. So, so I know, I know how powerful any situation, but I know that, that you went through a couple. So, so please tell us about what, what, what you went through and how, more importantly, how you got through it. Sure. Um, yeah. So let me just start by saying, you know, when I, when I started recovery, I, I really went in thinking I'll do this for a year or so. And I'm going to have a list of reasons I would allow myself to drink again. Okay. So it's, it's, you know, that old Friends episode where Ross and Rachel had a celebrity date list. Like, they wouldn't cheat on each other unless, you know, George Clooney walked in the room. <laughs> so I had this drink, this relapse list in my head. I never wrote it down. But part of that was if I lose a parent or if I lose a child. Um, I don't even remember. Nothing else seems relevant anymore that was on that list. Uh, so lo and behold, last September... My aunt, um, who's also my godmother, she, she, I, I mean, I have a mom too, who I love dearly, but my godmother was my mom's sister and she just, um, instilled in me at a very young age, a different outlook on spirituality. She was Christian, but she also believed in reincarnation and she just, she read tea leaves and she was just like this sage type cool lady. Yep. She pierced my ears with an ice cube and a needle, like just, just cool. You know, we just always connected and she always loved me unconditionally, no matter what. She just was calm and cool. Um, in August of last year, uh, I got a call. She'd been very sick. She'd had breast cancer and fought that and won for a while. And then her lungs started failing her. And I got a call one day that they didn't think she, she was going into hospice care and she was in Michigan and I was panicked. I was like, I have got to get back and see her. I do not have money to fly back to Michigan, but I was going to find a way. Like I was going to just do it. Right. And finally I just came to the realization, like I can't do this. I can't do this and pay rent. So I called her and just as sweet as an, and unconditional as always, she said, honey, I appreciate that you tried. And we, we said our goodbyes on the phone and yeah, it was an incredible moment to be present and it was difficult. I was in my parking lot at work when I got that call and, you know, is honey, is there anything you would like of mine? And all the things I ever wanted to tell her, I told her, you know, and, and she said, I know, I know you feel that way. 
and that, that was our connection. Like I never had to explain my love to her. She just knew. And so she died. I didn't get back and she died in September of last year. And it was tough. Like I just, I didn't regret my drinking at that point. I, I really don't feel that regret. I thought I would feel about, Oh my God, I should have been sober so much longer in my life. I just had this sense of loss and like, wow, she's really not on this earth anymore. So that was in September of last year. And at the time I was dating a man that was supportive and let me cry. And he was also in recovery. So he helped, helped me navigate. He has about a year more sobriety than me. Um, helped me navigate the feelings and just let me be. So that was September. And then by October, my dad was diagnosed with Alzheimer's or dementia, actually, um, probably about seven years ago. And he slowly was declining. The last time I saw him was in sobriety. And I don't know, wasn't the last time I saw him, second to last time I saw him. I don't know how much he knew or remembered but he did say to me, he's like, honey, I'm so sorry you have to go through all this. That was actually the first time I saw him when I got out of the Hope House. I said, you know what, Dad? I think I'm going to be okay. And um, we used to love to drink wine together. He, would, he called it his trophy. So if he got through the day, he was not an alcoholic, but if he got through the day, he'd have a glass or two of wine and he called it his trophy. Like he made it through the day and that was his reward. <laughs> but it was, I remember the, the first time I went back to visit him after I got sober, I was at an AA meeting and I was like, I'm so scared. He's not going to remember that I don't drink anymore because of the dementia. Right. Like I'm scared that he's going to offer it to me and I'm not going to know what to do. I'm not going to be strong enough, but he never did. I don't know if my stepmom coached him. I don't know if somewhere deep in him, he just knew, but he did not offer me any wine. Um, that I kind of backtracked, but anyway, so he was diagnosed quite a few years ago slowly was declining. And at some point, about a year and a half ago, I got an email from my sister giving us an update on dad. And that the one thing that was the most heartbreaking to her was that he didn't remember me. And I'm the baby of the family. So I was his, he used to call me his peanut because I was tiny and he just loved me. He just adored me. Like you can see it in the pictures of him holding me and the way he looked at me and you know, and my sister was like, I hate to say this, but he got your, your father's day cards and he, I threw pictures in there so he would know who we were. And she's like, he doesn't know who you are. And I was like, so freaking heartbroken. Like I started grieving then and I'm like, oh my God, he's already gone. I mean, physically he's here, but who is he if he doesn't know who I am? Yeah. And I, I went through about three weeks of severe grief and he was still here though. He was still alive. And I thought, you know what? I still have my memories. He doesn't have his that he can verbalize. You know, I still believe even people with dementia and Alzheimer's, they have deep rooted memories. I thought that's what got me through at that time was, you know, being sober, first of all, but realizing the gift of my sobriety had given me back so many memories of my dad and my childhood, things I had forgotten about because I was so deluded with alcohol. But then this last October, I got a call that he was severely, severely sick, and we didn't know why. 
and by Thanksgiving um, this last year, he had to go to the hospital. He had fallen and he had to, they called 911 three days or three times in one day to come get him. He couldn't get off the toilet. They had to come get him. He had no muscle function. So they took him to the hospital and it come to find out he had a bladder infection, which happens with people um, with, with those diseases. And my brother called and he said, you know, I really want to fly you to see dad because he knew I couldn't afford it. I was so blessed with that trip. Uh, I got to go for the week of Thanksgiving to see my dad. He was still in the hospital, but in the um, rehab section. They were trying to rehabilitate him physically enough to go home. The true gift here is I was present mm-hmm. for my dad, not only for my dad, but for my stepmother and my, and my sister, who his primary, primary caregivers. I was able to sit with him in the hospital for eight hours a day while they went out and tried to take care of things to get him home. I was able to play cards with him. I told him stories about all those memories I had, um, and I was able to encourage him to do his physical therapy that he hated. He flipped off the physical physical therapist. He was just (laughs) naughty, naughty. And the lady's like, is he, you know, dementia does this to people, but I was like, he is the most God-loving man you will ever meet. And this is just, he thinks it's funny to flip people off, but... (laughs) Anyway, I had the best time, eight hours a day for four solid days. And um, I, he, one of his physical therapists one day was from Hawaii, and dad was in the army in Hawaii. And that was the one day he was most lucid. He knew all of the old stories from his 20s because that one man, that one gentleman was from Hawaii. I got to see my dad be jovial and he was talking about how they used to go to Waikiki and sneak out and not check back in. He was in the army, all this stuff. Um, and it was a blessing. I was blessed that I could be of service to my family, but they trusted me. That was huge. Me, the, the, the irresponsible baby of the family, you know, the, the alcoholic of the family, they trusted me. That was huge. Um, but that last day I was there, you know, all the whole time I was there, dad kept saying, I want to go home to dad. You're going to go home Friday. Well, I want to go home now. Kept saying it, kept saying it. But the day I left to get on the airplane, I just, I knelt down by him and I knew he was gone. I just knew in my heart that was the last time I was going to see him. And I just told him I loved him. And, um, you know, he said it back. But I knew in my heart when he was asking to go home, it was heaven. It wasn't the home down the street. Because actually when he did get there, he still wanted to go home. And so I left him the day after Thanksgiving. And by December 20th, he was gone. Um, I am so blessed that I was able to say goodbye to him and have those many hours with him. It's been hitting me today anyways, but, um, you bring it girl. So (laughs) I, um, 
Yeah, grief comes in ebbs and flows. There are no freaking stages of grief. It, I can tell you that. It just happened, so oh, it's going to get worse. Uh, <laughs> I'm just going to prepare you. Yeah, it does. You, you will just, you'll have moments where you think about him and you are just going to just, you'll be in the grocery store. You'll just lose it. It was the oh, first, the first yeah, first two years were just yeah. brutal, brutal. Well, First we're planning my, my oldest daughter's graduation is Sunday, and then we go right into Father's Day and my uh, sobriety date. Yep. It's all, I'm just an emotional yeah. basket case today. But anyway, I am and I'm not. I, I am in a sober way. Um, <laughs> but, you know, we got the call that, that he was going to pass. The physical symptoms were all there, and my brother and sister were there, and I got to call and put the phone up to dad's ear. And holy cow, you know, nobody it's it i keep saying death of a parent is like childbirth no one can prepare you for it mm-hmm. until you go through it right it doesn't matter what they tell you what books you read nothing can prepare you for this um so end of december i feel i i'm looking back and i'm like my tribe is gone my aunt and my dad and i still have a very loving family and i don't want to discredit any of their love. It's just that my dad and my aunt always loved me unconditionally. You know, I, I could be kind of a shit and my dad still would calmly, calmly lecture me sometimes for hours, but he never judged me. If he did, it was silent. And, and he, he just, there isn't a love like that. I know it for my own kids, but I, it was heart-wrenching to lose those two so quick in succession. And um, I have to say, a drink didn't come to mind. Um, there was, it was two days after um, his death that I was in my closet on the floor, just hysterical, like out of my mind. I don't know if I've ever acted that way. And crying, and my boyfriend was living with me at the time, and he came in, and he just put his arm around me, and he said, we need to get you out of the house, because my kids were home, and they were scared. And the same boyfriend in recovery um, got me out in his truck, and I was just hysterical. He's like, just let it out. Yep, yep. And I'm like, I don't know what to do. I don't know what I'm doing. I've never done this before. And he's like, do you want a drink? And I said, I don't know. You know, he was like forcing me to think about it and putting me in that position. Like, do you want a drink? I'm like, I don't know. And he's like, well, then maybe we should go get you one. I'm like, no, I don't want a drink. You know, it was like, you pushed me up against a wall. And no, I don't really want a drink. But I was in that same stupid place where I didn't want to feel that way. Yeah. You know, and then the next day he's like, why don't you call your doctor? So I called my doctor and I got smart when I got in recovery and did not go back to the doctor that prescribed me crap. Thank God. I go to a naturopath. Yeah. Went to my naturopath and I'm sobbing with her and I'm like, I don't want to feel this way. You need, and I'm thinking, I know she can prescribe me something because she can, but it's her last resort. And I said, just, just Xanax. And she's like, Kelly, you know what I'm hearing you say? that you may not be aware of is you're saying you don't want to feel, you don't want to feel this. She said, how much grief have you never felt in your life? Oh man. And I sat there stunned. 
okay, well, pretty much 45 years worth, you know, starting, I don't even know where to start, but I said, I get, I get your point. And she said, I'm going to suggest that you go to a grief counselor and continue your sobriety program, but I'm not going to give you anything because you need to feel this to get through it. So tears today, I'm still feeling it, but I also feel blessed because I'm feeling it. I, one of the best gifts given to me um, as a sympathy gift was a blank journal. A friend of mine in recovery gave it to me and she said, I hope that you will write down the memories of your dad as they come to you and someday share this, share this book with me and share the stories of your dad. That is the most amazing gift I've ever received. <laughs> that journal was with me everywhere I went. And it's full of stuff, full of stuff I didn't remember until he died. It's like when he died, so much came back to me. And again, I'm sober. If I was drinking, I wouldn't have that journal. I wouldn't have that friend. I wouldn't have those memories. So I'm sitting here today. Yes, I am still heartbroken. And I will be. Yes. I just got a box stuff from Las Vegas where he lived. I just got a box of his shoes and his sweaters and stuff last week, brought it all out again. But, you know, for me, my first initial thought that night I was on the closet floor was like, I didn't want to drink, but I also didn't want help. I didn't want any of my AA friends involved. I didn't want to talk about it. I didn't want to go to a meeting and cry. I really just wanted to wallow in it, you know, and I do think that person who's not in my life anymore, that he, he was here and he kind of knew what buttons to push, what to say and what to allow me to do. Um, I, I am on, not on the other side because I said this grief thing ebbs and flows, but somehow I'm getting through it. And I have gone to meetings now. You know, he suggested, maybe you should think about going to a meeting. Got me out on New Year's Eve to an AA party. We won $150 in two TVs that night. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, I don't want to go. I'm in my pajamas. He's like, we're going, you know. And that started it again. Like, I do need these people. I do need to cry in a room full of people. And it was so therapeutic. Now I don't care. I cry all the time. I cry when I need to. I've met a couple other women who lost their fathers, just a couple, whoops, just a couple months before me. Um, are you still there? Yep. Uh huh. Okay. Sorry. And you know, again, sharing my story, if I hadn't opened my mouth, I wouldn't be able to commiserate with some other women and, and men, you know, everybody goes through grief at some point. And if you haven't yet, you will, you know, and I say that about addiction, you want to judge somebody, you haven't met somebody yet, but you will. Someday addiction is going to affect your life somewhere down the road. You know, it's, it's just, I don't know. Somehow these deaths have, they've made me stronger. I, I certainly feel weak and I appear weak, I'm sure at times, but I am walking so much stronger today. And I am absolutely a miracle because there is no way that I can do these on my own terms. 
There isn't. I would go seven days without a drink and celebrate celebrate by drinking. Like, woohoo, I did it seven days. I can <laughs> drink. So what who thinks that way? You know, alcoholics. Alcoholics. <laughs> right. You know, I'm gonna I'm gonna reward myself by not drinking by drinking. That's asinine. But today it's just like holy shit, I just got through that list of things that I was gonna drink about. You know, I haven't thank God lost a child. You know, that still goes through my mind. Okay, I made it through my dad and I made it through my aunt. And my grandma died a few years ago. But I don't know if I can make it through a child. Right. Who knows? One day at a time. But um, I did start going to a counselor who's amazing. And he turned me on to a great book that I tell everybody about. It's called um, Grieving Mindfully. I'll have to send you the link. It so mirrors recovery. It is unbelievable. You can, and I've taken it to my AA meetings and I've read it. Like everyone, just substitute the word grief for sobriety or recovery. It is amazing what this book has done for me. Um, he talks about a spiral staircase of grief that is just like recovery, how, how these feelings, you may not like them, but they become familiar. You know, you can't wake up every day and know what to expect, but you can expect, or, you know, the spiral state, the, the unfamiliarity becomes familiar, if that makes any sense in yes, a convoluted way. Absolutely. Yes. You know, I don't know what to expect in recovery, but it's familiar. It's, I don't know. It's an amazing journey. And I didn't think I would survive that night in the closet. <laughs> and I haven't been the nicest person to be around, but. I'm still sober and I'm still present today to help my kids get through this. You know, my oldest one was pretty close to her grandpa and I don't know. It's just a gift, all of it. And you know what? Life on life's terms. When I was still on that pink cloud, I was like, this is amazing. Oh my gosh. Recovery. This is great. I got this lit. <laughs> I should have been this happy my whole life. Uh -huh. And then bam, you know, shit starts to happen you know, deaths and breakups and, you know, I'm going through pulling a child out of school because of a bullying situation. I'm looking at homeschooling and how am I going to afford to work and, oh my gosh, all this stuff. But it's, it's life. It's actually, newsflash, the way we're supposed to live. We're supposed to deal with this stuff and not drink it away or smoke it away or snort it away. This is life, folks. You know, <laughs> take away the drink and you're peeling back the layers and all the shit pushed in the corner has to come out. It's got to. It does. It, st it doesn't stay in that corner. If it does, then you die. You got to let that shit out. Nothing stays in. No. It'll kill you. It that, will. That's what we do. That's why we do it. And, you know, if it makes you feel any better, I've been yeah. through... All of what you've been through already, you know, including losing a father and all those myriad of emotions that you go through and not knowing what's coming up next, not knowing what to expect or when it's going to get better, or when, it can, when, it, when it's going to get easier. Um, but, but the beautiful thing is that, like, as, as I sit here with you right now, I can tell you that it will, that, you know, it will stop. It is it it is painful. It is excruciatingly painful, and it will be for a while. 
And I love what I think was it a therapist or was it your your who was it that told you when was the last time you actually felt these feelings you were trying to you know not feel? Oh, yeah, my naturopath. She's yeah. a physician, but you know, nat- yeah. When's the last time you felt grief? That, Never. Yeah, I mean, that was like what a question, like a mind blowing question for somebody <laughs> early in recovery. Because we, we don't realize that we've been trying to numb every single feeling, even the good ones out, right, yeah. all, our, all our lives, right? And, and so these beautiful aha moments and epiphanies wouldn't have happened if this didn't happen, right? If you, if you, if this, exactly. if you're, if you wouldn't have gone to her if your dad hadn't passed. And so right. as this goes on, you're going to get opportunities for learning and growth, as painful as it is, all these things are opportunities for learning and growing. Coping skills, right? You're going to learn how to cope with your feelings. Embrace your feelings, right? And then you're going to be able to walk somebody else through this and let somebody else mm-hmm. know, I have been where you are at and it will get better. And then these are the things that you do. It's almost like recovery. You don't hide in your house. You don't medicate. You know, you don't live in denial. Mm-hmm. You don't live in the past. It's just like recovery. You're in the present right now. And and though you're grieving, yep. you have this beautiful family. You have your recovery. You have, you're about to celebrate three years. And though he's not here to celebrate it with you, right? His legacy, right. His legacy lives on in your heart. Well, I'll tell you a couple, just a couple more things. Um, the way I've described my feelings recently, and when I said it out loud, it was just right. I said, you know, the feelings of grief that I'm feeling are so raw, but they're also the most pure emotions I have ever felt. Yes. And it's, there's something beautiful about it. You know, there's, there's nothing fun about losing a parent or grief, but there are so many gifts underlying what I'm going through. And seriously, if I wasn't sober, I wouldn't see those gifts. Um, and the other thing I shared at a meeting tonight was last week I mentioned I got a box of my dad's items and he was very famous for wearing these super fancy white shoes. They're like old, kind of like old man shoes. They're like leather, nice, super nice leather shoes, but he had like six pair. So me and my brother and sister all got a pair and I got mine last week and I was so thrilled to have these shoes I put them by my bedroom door and they're angled as he's walking out the door. So every morning I see his shoes sitting there and he was such a good person and such a God loving person. I say to myself, what would Gary do? If I haven't remembered to pray and I see those shoes, I remember and I ask myself, what would my dad do? And you know, this week's been rough. It's been I've, I've been looking through old photos for my daughter's graduation, and it's just been a whirlwind of emotions. And I was really in a pissy place today, and I thought, what would Gary do? I thought, you know what? <laughs> he would tell me to take care of myself, and I haven't been. I haven't eaten. At some point today, I realized, oh, I may be hungry. I haven't eaten. Hungry, angry, lonely, tired, right? But I love those shoes. It's like, that's a gift. I look at those shoes, and I know... I can start my day trying to walk a better path. And what would he do? He would pray, first of all. And that reminds me, oh God, 
dad would have prayed. He prayed all the time. It's just, there's little things if you're sober enough to see them or listen, you know, and it, as, as a sober person, my therapist urged me a few weeks ago to come up with my own tagline. He's like, I want it. Not, not a paragraph, not even a sentence. Like, what would it be if you had your own bumper sticker? What would it say about Kelly? And the recurring thing that keeps coming up as I talk to people is use your voice. Hmm. Use your voice. And, you know, Paul and I came up with the thing, shred the shame. <laughs> and, you know, I thought, use my voice in recovery, but now... Now I can help someone with grief by using my story. Like if you don't open your mouth to either help somebody or ask for help, you're not going to get the gifts that the universe has to give you. That's it. Like that's in a nutshell for me right now today. (laughs) (laughs) That is beautiful and awesome. And thank you so much for sharing that amazing story. And I got so much from it and resonated from it. You know, like I said, like I told you, I've been through so much of what you've been through, um, experienced so much of what you've experienced. And this is what our listeners need to hear that here's two people that are on, you know, different continents and, you know, from different places. And we know exactly what the other one's been through because we've walked yep. in their shoes. And mm-hmm. that's what we need. That's that's the most important message is that you are not alone. And no matter how bad it gets, somebody else has walked through that same path. You just need to, you know, open your mouth, right? Like you're use saying. Use your voice. Use your voice. <laughs> you know, that's it. Right. Just use your voice. Use your words. <laughs> you know? Exactly. And, yeah, and, not, you don't even have to use your indoor voice. You just got to talk. You know, you can yell if you want. Yeah, it's all right. You, you got to get it out, you know, and <clears throat> there's no way we can do this alone. We have to do this together, you know, and there's so many different opportunities to do so. You know, there's now with the internet, you can go into any sorts of groups. You can go to in the rooms, you can join Facebook groups, you can do, you know, you can do all kinds of things that'll help you bridge the gap between, you know, something a little bit more formal, getting to meetings, Mm -hmm. going to smart recovery, even, you know, seeking any sort of outside help, any kind of therapy. So often, we're just so embarrassed and so ashamed of being an addict or an alcoholic that we just will not say anything to anyone until it's completely undeniable or worse, right? We, right. We, we end up, you know, jails, institutions, or death, right? So, yeah. so, you know, just use your voice and ask for help. It will come. We've done it. Prayed on our knees fucked up out of our minds All of it. <laughs> <laughs> either right. take me out of here or get me into recovery and here we are today sharing kelly's story an amazing story so wow thank you for that amazing story kelly hey you're welcome i'm so happy you asked me to be on the show well i'm grateful i'm grateful you decided to show up you know <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's what i try to do these days show up, show that's up. It. you just got to show up right all right so let's start yep. closing up And the way I like to close up is for the newcomer. So the first question here is, what was keeping you from getting clean or staying clean when you first got introduced to recovery? Um, I stayed clean. (laughs) (laughs) 
Yeah, I just did. I mean, roll with it. You know, I guess what prevented me from starting recovery was shame. It was just, you know, I'm a mom. I'm not supposed to be drinking wine at soccer, and you know, no other mom must be going through this. So, yeah, it was shame that kept me out of recovery for so long. Beautiful, beautiful. And number two, at what point did you have a spiritual awakening, that aha moment in recovery when you accepted that you were powerless over drugs and alcohol, but for the first time had developed the hope that you could recover? I think that for me, it wasn't an aha moment. It's been a series of events. What I need, and and it's not in a monetary sense, just all of my needs are being met, be it a pretty package or not. I am getting what I need through my recovery. If if I stay on the path and I do the work and I stay diligent, small aha moments happen every day. Mm. And one and I may not even realize it until the next week. Oh, dang, that just happened and there was a reason for that. So for me that's it. It wasn't like a lightning bolt. It was just a series of events that that made me have faith. So then number 3 Do you have a favorite book that you would recommend to a newcomer that you read in early recovery and also the book about grief? Yeah. So, of course, the big book of AA saved my life. Um, In early recovery, I really wasn't coherent enough to focus on the meat of the book. So I read the stories in the back and then I slowly worked my way up to the front of the book. Um, The book about grief that was life-changing for me is Grieving Mindfully. And I'll have to get you the author's name. Go ahead and go to dad's house. Okay. I'll call you in a minute. Okay. Sorry, Omar. <laughs> See what I mean about live. This is life on life terms. Right. Actually, actually, it. actually would be funny. <laughs> I know. No, go to dad's house. <laughs> I'm tempted to leave it in there. <laughs> yeah, you could. You could totally. I should have had the dog howling a few minutes ago. That would have been perfect. <laughs> I even I was even able to find out the author of Grieving Mindfully. It's Samit Kumar. That's it. Yep. It is a life-changing book. I can't, everyone I talk to, it comes up in conversation. I'm like, you should read this book. I like crazy lady, whatever. <laughs> I love it. No. And we need more suggestions like those because there's a lot of people that are, you know, are coping with this and they have no idea how to cope with their grief. I, I know I didn't, you know, but of course I had tools that other people don't, you know, just you have, we have such an edge over most people because whatever we can't deal with in the meetings, somebody in there is going to know how to point us in the right direction. And that's an advantage that most people don't have. Absolutely. And there is one more book I'm reading right now, Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. Mm, man. Heavy book. Have you read that one? Oh, yeah. Love it. Yeah. It that is one, amazing. for me, it's, it's amazing. Just, yeah. So those are my three favorites right now. Beautiful, beautiful. All right. So number four, what is the best suggestion you have ever received? Really just to do the next right thing. I still use that. You know, in early recovery, when I was not super keen on self-care, like <laughs> the next right thing was just brush my teeth. Um, you know, one day I would load the dishwasher and then, you know, those little things add up and then you're actually doing something like service work for someone else. But for me, that next right thing was really service work to myself. Like, what am I going to do 
in the next moment to stay sober or the next moment to get a little bit healthier today. Mm. I still love that one. Yes. Yes. Beautiful. Beautiful. I love it. All right. So number five, if you could give our newcomers only one suggestion, what would that be? Use your voice. (laughs) Oh, really? Um, I just hate the stigma, you know, and with the the recent death of, uh, sound guy sound garden guy and you know whatever happened there happened but i just get so frustrated with the stigma and it's not going to change until we start talking about it and those still suffering need to talk about it you don't get better and and the shame just is going to swallow society at some point you got to come out it's it's just like any other thing you come out about you just you got to tell your story use your voice and get help you can't get better if no one knows you're suffering. And I'll take this opportunity to talk about that because we don't. And, I, you know, I try not to get too ingrained in current current affairs or current events, especially politics, you know, yeah, uh, I don't. On, on the podcast. Um, but, you know, since you were you taking benzos, yeah, you know, these anxiety pills that Chris Cornell was taking. Right. You know, I mean, they were benzos. So there's an irresponsibility, and and if you read about what he was taking, it says, you know, here here are the people not to take it. One of them is if you're an addict or an alcoholic, don't take this. Right. So, so, and it's like you, the first doctor you had that was prescribing you the benzos, right? So yeah. somebody made a bad call yeah. and prescribed a drug addict the wrong the wrong thing. You know what I mean? And and at some point this inevitability happened. And, and, you know, I even tell my wife this too. It's like, you know, I, I guess for some of us, you know, the beautiful, the beautiful thing about not being rich and not being famous is that we're not given any sort of special treatment. Okay. When we get sober, we have to do it from the ground up. We have to crawl into these rooms. We have to get a sponsor. We have to work steps. We have to do service. And if we're not doing these things and you skip any of these steps or you get help with any of these steps, you know, or you get around certain yep. things, then you're not really recovered. And so shit like this happens, you know, and I think it's very important that, you know, we don't take it lightly and that, you know, you're hyper vigilant about what you put in your body, you know, at all times. Well, you know, and same thing with Prince, not to digress, but true, same thing. And, but this thing with him, like, I think where I get very passionate about this thing, this whole topic is the criticism Oh, he had to know what he was doing or he, you know, he was a drug addict, so he must have relapsed. Well, who knows? I mean, we don't know. We weren't in the bathroom with him. No one was. It was him and God. That's it. You know, but when I said, when he said he took a few more than normal Ativan, I was like, I kind of get that. Like, to me, the criticism, you can't, you can't criticize if you haven't been there. Like, I don't know if it's fear if the, if society is scared or what, but the criticism drives me crazy. Like when I got to the hope house that night and they sent me back to the hospital, I went back to the hope house and the nurse said, you are damn lucky you weren't in a coma Mm. with all of the, all that was in your system. All, everything you had was a downer. And I started, you know, Oh, well I'm supposed to take a half a Xanax. I'll take two because I really feel anxiety today. You know, you don't, those I don't know. It's a passionate subject for me. And I have to stay off the comments of 
all of that stuff because it just infuriates me. Wow. What a way to close. Very powerful. Kelly, thank you again for that amazing story. I loved it. You are welcome. Anytime. I'll use my voice again if you need it. And my voice also translates into words. So, you know, <laughs> I'll, be, I'll be writing a lot more as I grow in recovery. Beautiful, beautiful. All right, folks, we have now reached the end of our show. Thanks for joining us. And as we say here in Costa Rica, Pura Vida. Pura Vida. Thank you for joining us on the Share Recovery Podcast. To check out the show notes page on this interview or to thank our guests for sharing their story, go to www.thesharepodcast.com. While you're on the website, don't forget to sign up for our free newsletter to stay up to date on the latest news, podcasts, and interviews. Want to be one of our guests and share your story? Then go to our website and click on the Share Your Story button. We share our inspiring recovery stories every Tuesday. So subscribe to our show on iTunes or Stitcher Radio to get your free weekly download. We'll see you then. The opinions shared on this show reflect those of the individual speaker and not of any 12-step fellowship as a whole. And though we discuss 12-step recovery and the impact it had in our lives, we do not promote or endorse any 12-step anonymous program.